Okay, good evening everyone, or hello, might not be evening where you are when you're watching this. Time is, time is at least mostly conventional, conceptual, right? Real time is the impermanence of reality, nothing is static, there's nothing that is outside the realm of nothing that arises that is outside the realm of change and because of that it's all subject to time and you can say time exists but yesterday doesn't exist tomorrow doesn't exist thursday doesn't exist evening doesn't exist they're all just concepts what exists is reality the reality of experience. But welcome anyway. What's real is you're welcome here. As long as you have an interest in Buddhism, meditation, peace, happiness, freedom from suffering. If you don't have an interest in any of those things, well, I don't know how welcome you are, but we're not going to be unkind unless you are. So you're welcome to stay and listen. Maybe you'll gain some interest in these things. Most people are interested in these things. They form the basis of Buddhism. Peace, happiness, freedom from suffering. One question that used to often come up was, what is Buddhism anyway? It's a per, you could say it's a perennial question. often phrased as, is Buddhism a religion? Of course, the word religion is problematic. It's problematic in the sense of being hard to pin down. When you ask whether something's a religion, well, it's a hard question to answer because the word religion, like many such words, means different things to different people. It's like the word meditation. I would say Buddhism is a religion. That's because I define religion as anything people or someone takes seriously. Anything that is taken seriously, religiously. So everyone has their own religiosity. And... When they're given a name, they can call that their religion. But in Buddhism, we have what are called the three jewels. And these form the sort of essence of Buddhist religion. They're, they're very religious in a conventional sense of the word. They're a very religious sort of set of things. And so they're very well known among Buddhists. They're very central in the thought and everyday practice of Buddhists. And they have a, a certain degree of importance as a set. Now, really, honestly, they, they, they form the whole of, of everything that is Buddhism, but, but they need not be emphasized. It's just that by emphasizing them or considering them as a set, 
provides some positive benefits. There's something good about thinking about, considering, and keeping in mind these three things. So for many of you, this is quite familiar, you know what the three jewels are. It's often called the triple gem. Triple gem is probably less accurate a translation just because it's not one gem that's triple, it's three things. So for those of you who don't know, they're the Buddha, something called the Dhamma, and something else called the Sangha. I assume everyone knows what the Buddha is. I've heard that before. It's a word that we're very lucky to have heard. It's not every era, every century or millennia that people hear the word Buddha. There will come a time when that word is only heard as a as a legend. And even now we just hear it as something from the past. We don't have any capacity to come in contact with the namesake. But the Buddha is, well, at least familiar to most people, hopefully most people here anyway. And the Dhamma, the Dhamma means, Dhamma is the teaching of the Buddha, and Sangha is the followers of the Buddha. So these are the three jewels. They're jewels, they're three treasures. Another translation of Ratana might be treasure. Three priceless, precious things. Three things to be revered, protected, guarded. And be valued. They should be valued because on, on, on two levels they provide it provides a benefit. There's there's positive benefits to doing so. It's a has a positive impact on one's life and on one's practice. On the level of convention Valuing the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, keeping them close, provides great inspiration. The Buddha said, the Buddha himself said, if you're ever afraid, if you're ever desperate, think of the Buddha who is free from fear, who is perfect and pure. Think of the nobility and the greatness of the Buddha, and that fear will go away, he said. If it doesn't think about the Dhamma, if it doesn't go away, or if you don't think of the Buddha, an alternative is to think about the Dhamma, think about his teachings, and otherwise think about the Sangha, think about his disciples who have followed his teachings. And on an on a, on another level, 
on an ultimate level, which will sort of try to describe thinking about them on an on on ultimate experiential level, can have a great benefit of directing, focusing our practice. So this topic really isn't about actual practice, but provides elements of understanding reality and more importantly provides support for our practice. These three things, thinking about them, understanding them, appreciating them, is, it's a good support for our practice in two ways. So on a conventional level, the Buddha was a man who was Lived, who lived in India over 2,500 years ago. And through his own experience and understanding of the truth, He freed himself from all delusion and wrong view, all craving and clinging, all liking and disliking, and spent 45 years teaching others. He is our teacher. He is our guide and our leader. And through the creation of images in his likeness, symbols, and just through remembrance of his qualities, remembrance of the stories, hearing the stories of the Buddha throughout his 45 years, reading his teachings, without even reference to the actual teachings himself, the greatness, the general greatness of the teaching apart from the actual content of the teaching, gives us a great sense of appreciation for the Buddha. So reading the Dhamma is a great way to gain respect and appreciation. You'll see in his teaching that there's nothing that is based on prejudice or manipulation. There's nothing lacking or shallow. There is a depth and a completeness to them. There is a straightness to them. There is a beneficence to them. And a beneficence to the Buddha that makes us appreciate and respect and even revere him as some great being to be so appreciated. So people often in Buddhist countries will recite the Buddha's virtues. In Pali, it's a really good chant to learn. If you don't learn any chant, if you learn one chant, if you learn one chant, uh, you can learn Namotasa, Bhagavato, Arahato, Samma, Samudasa. It's a simple chant. Namotasa is like namaste in Sanskrit. Namotasa, homage to him. Bhagavato, the blessed one. Arahato, the worthy one. Samma, Sambuddhasa, the rightly self-awakened one. But on an ultimate level, the Buddha is actually just made up of his qualities. And so there's another chant that Buddhists will often recite, and that's a longer one. Itipiso bhagava rahang samma sambuddho vidya charana sampanno sugato lokavidu 
อนุตโรปุริสดมสารทีสัทธาเดวมนุสานังบุตโตบาโกวา which outlines the qualities of the Buddha and it's worth learning all of them I'm not going to go into detail I don't have enough time but it's worth reading you can consider the qualities of the Buddha he has three main qualities and all of these Many positive qualities and great qualities of the Buddha, virtues, guna. The virtues of the Buddha. And so, in in terms of our practice, it provides not only an appreciation and respect of how great the Buddha was, but It provides an ideal that we may never live up to, but nonetheless, really focuses, as I said, focuses our attention. What is Buddhism about? What is practice about? Well, it's very much about these qualities of the Buddha: the Buddha's purity, the Buddha's wisdom, the Buddha's enlightenment. We think about the the omniscience and the purity and the Compassion, the kindness of the Buddha. We may not become a Buddha ourselves. Most people will not. Almost everyone will not. But nonetheless, we can follow in his footsteps, helping others as a part of our practice. This is a way of appreciating the Buddha. The Buddha said, "If you want to appreciate me and respect me, the best way." Before he passed away, he said, "This the best way to revere the Buddha. The right way is through practice of his teachings." As for the Dhamma, again on two levels, we appreciate and respect the Dhamma. Dhamma is open, open, and realizable, testable. Something you can test for yourself. Ehi pasiko, ehi kam pasa si. Ehi pasiko, you can come and see for yourself. It's a quality of the Dhamma. So just remembering the Dhamma is a great thing to respect. Just reverence and respect really focuses your attention and. The great psychological benefits of appreciating good things. No, what's it like to appreciate bad things? What does that do to you when you incline and appreciate people's vices, approve of them? What does that make you become? So, appreciation and respect and reverence of good things. What does this do for you? Just as complimenting others, appreciating others is a great thing. Appreciating the one who is most worthy of appreciation, the Buddha, and appreciating his teachings, the Dhamma, the noblest teaching in the world. What does that do to you? It's a great benefit. And of course, the Dhamma, on an ultimate level, has a deeper implication for our practice. Our appreciation for the Dhamma, our remembrance of the Dhamma, is something that really. Really uh, holds our practice together. It's not enough to think you might just meditate and become enlightened without the framework of the Dhamma. And not only that, but with a perspective that is based on the Dhamma. So, me meaning that the word Dhamma comes from Dhar, which means to hold. So a dharma, a dhamma is something that is real, something that holds its own existence, something that holds in reality. It's not. It's not just conjecture. So our practice is very much focused on actual reality. Our practice is about practicing the dhamma as teachings in order to realize the dhamma as reality. 
in order to see things as they are. Reality is not something mystical or esoteric, but it isn't something that we normally see. We normally see convention. We're constantly, constantly, most of the time in our lives, in our heads, thinking about things, reacting to things, abstracting everything. We're very rarely, without training, present in reality. So a reflection and a remembrance of the Dhamma and appreciation, a study of the Dhamma, repetition, listening to the Dhamma, has a great benefit for our practice. As for the Sangha, the Sangha is often interpreted as being the monks, the monastic Sangha, and it's true that monks are considered a Sangha, but that's not the Sangha that is referred to here. It's not the, the precious treasure. It's not a jewel. The Bhikkhu Sangha is not the jewel. It's not something that you have to revere. It's something maybe you can respect, probably should respect, but we shouldn't confuse the two. We shouldn't think, oh, the Buddha said this is the highest a jewel. And so we should revere the Bhikkhu Sangha, revere the monks. That's not the meaning of the word Sangha in that sense. It's a different Sangha. It's a Samuti Sangha. It's a conceptual Sangha. Monks can be just as corrupt or even more corrupt than lay people. And you shouldn't revere people who are corrupt. You maybe respect, respect the Buddha who is great and pure. And so you respect his Sangha, respect his, his creation of the Bhikkhu Sangha. But the Buddha's real Sangha is the Arya Sangha. The Arya Sangha who are those who have well practiced, whether they be lay people or, or monastics, ordained, unordained, male, female, adult, child, human or angel, devas can also be a part of the sangha. Respect for them and reverence for them is a very great thing. It's a great thing because it forms the basis of the actual religion or dispensation. Without the sangha, you don't have a teaching, right? You don't have a teacher without a student. And more practically, you, you, you don't have a spreading and a sharing and a teaching and a continuation of the Dhamma. So without the Sangha, we wouldn't have practice even today. We wouldn't even have it. So we don't just overlook the teachers, the people who pass this on. We respect them as well. We revere and we remember them, we honor them. And on an ultimate level, the Sangha provides focus for our practice. It's quite common for people to become even fixated on becoming a an, an member of the Arya Sangha. So people will talk about becoming a Sotapanna becoming a Sakadagami, Anagami, Arahata. I think that can actually go too far. It's easy to become obsessed and fixated. But nonetheless, it provides focus, provides some direction. And I think we should never be fixated on goals, because obviously when you're fixated on a goal, you're not actually being present. But nonetheless, our remembrance of the qualities, and again, I don't have time to go through the qualities of the various levels of the Sangha, but through studying them and appreciating them, the, em the emphasis on those qualities really gives you a sense of the path, a sense of the Dhamma, 
because it's a huge part of any religion are the soteriological aspects. The uh, aspects relating to the goal. I think that's the word, soteriological. Anyway, those aspects relating to the goal. Well, what's it for? What's the point? What's the point? What's the goal? What's the ultimate state? The ultimate realization. And the the analysis of the sangha, though we may never become a Buddha, we can all make aspirations to become part of the sangha. To free ourselves from suffering and free ourselves from vice, free ourselves from craving. become as pure as the Buddha. So just some thoughts on the Triple Gem. Another chant that is very common and one that actually my teacher who passed away just over a year ago, someone we can revere and remember, something he actually directly told me once to tell. I have it on tape actually, I have it on a recording. He was giving a talk about the three jewels. And I started smi I smiled because it was so beautiful. And he turned to me. He turned to me. I don't know if he had some kind of special powers or something, or if he was just looking and he saw me. He said, you understand, don't you? Because I, I was just learning Thai, so my Thai wasn't great. And he said, you understand? I said, yes, sir. And he said, tell... Tell all the foreigners. Tell the foreigners. So uh, the chant that he gave me actually is one that's not that familiar to most people, and it's Buddho me nato, Dhammo me nato, Sangho me nato. The one we're familiar with usually is Buddhang Saranangha Chami, Dhammang Saranangha Chami. I go to the Buddha for refuge. I go to the Dhamma for refuge. Sanghang Sarananga Chami. I go to the Sangha for refuge. Buddha Menato is just an affirmation. I'm not sure which one is more appropriate. Anyway, Ajahn Tong told me to tell people this one. So, Buddha Menato just means the Buddha is my refuge. Dhammo Menato, the Dhamma is my refuge. Sangho me nato, the Sangha is my refuge. Take these as your refuge, they are very valuable and precious. And they will provide a true refuge. So that's the talk for today. Now I think we'll move on to questions. So from here on, questions only in chat, please. I'll ask the moderators to remove anything that's not a question from here on just to keep it just to keep it clean okay let's begin our first question does one need a certain level of intelligence to understand buddhism and meditation a certain level. I'm hesitant because intelligence isn't really enough, but intelligence is a positive quality. It's just you have to be careful not to overemphasize it. It's easy to get on the wrong track thinking that intelligence is, is more central than it is. I mean, the problem is if you're too unintelligent to understand and to reason things out, makes it more difficult for you to appreciate and put into practice the teachings. I would, I would say the bar is pretty low for intelligence, personally. And I think by most people's standard of differences of, you know, sorry, by the general uh, difference of intelligence among individuals, 
it has no relevance and in fact can be negative negatively correlated where people with too much intelligence becomes harder for them to practice but what i'm thinking of is at the very low end where you might get into uh, people who have what do you call a mental disability i'm not sure that people with what we might call a mental disability might would be able to truly appreciate the teaching or become enlightened i don't know i know there is some texts that might suggest that it's not possible for them and i don't i think it's it's not quite clear i don't, I don't think there's any value in placing too much emphasis on that idea so honestly not too much value in answering this question except in that way where it's generally negatively correlated where less intelligence makes it often easier to practice but if we talk about a lower cutoff low cutoff it's not really useful because even even an animal let's say whose intelligence level is just too low definitely too low to become enlightened uh, even for them greatness can be cultivated so don't dismiss someone just because of their disabilities or or especially low intelligence if anything be wary of those who are too intelligent regularly noting the touching point seems impossible I almost always get distracted before noting sitting. There seems to be so many sensations that arise, and if it's not one thing, it's another. I've noticed when I note the frustration, or the seemingly overarching feeling that I'll never have a smooth meditation, I feel a sense of relief, like the noting worked, like the noting in the meditation finally worked. Am I on to something with noting what feels like overarching feelings? even if it feels like I have to sort of look for it. In the beginning, there might be a little bit of looking anyway because it, it's new to you and it's not it's not, not something you're skilled at yet. Another overarching, I would say the answer is yes, generally to your question. The, the, except that in the long term, you don't want to be looking for things. So don't take that as a right practice shouldn't require looking it should just require recognizing uh, but another thing you might recognize is being distracted or overwhelmed so when you're distracted meaning there's many things so many sensations you would just say distracted distracted and overwhelmed you can also say if it feels overwhelmed if it feels overwhelming uh, but another thing you might note is the desire to to have a calm mind so the frustration is often caused by the expectation that it should be a certain way and of course seeing that it's not going to be the way you expect is a great thing so in the beginning this is just a natural part of the process because you're seeing how expectations are just a waste of time and and detrimental because they set you up for frustration so note that as well if you want or if you expect or so on When meditating, sometimes I see a flash of an image, perhaps from a movie or a memory. Other times there is a long stream of conversation. Should I note them the same or differently due to duration? I would just note them repeatedly. If it's a conversation, it would be hearing, I suppose. But if it, it would be, it would be hearing. But uh, if it's something you see for a long time, you can say seeing, seeing just repeatedly until it goes away. If after a long time it doesn't go away, you can ignore it. Go back to the main object. How should we deal with difficult meditation sessions? I sometimes experience obstacles in my meditation and often end up beating myself up since I am not sure if I'm doing enough. Well, look at the beating yourself up. I mean, note the note the obstacles as an experience, but also note the beating yourself up because that's just your description of it. What is actually happening? There's a judgment, a disliking, an anger, a frustration, whatever. 
being not sure that you're doing enough, you can note doubting or worrying. It's mostly worrying, I would think, because it's not really helpful to think about how much you're doing. Just try and note worrying. Should we eat in the morning before formal meditation? Isn't it bad for digestion to exercise right after eating? Not sure how true it is, but if it is, does the slowness of walking negate this? Well, I'm not a dietitian. I can ask our resident dietitian, but um, the slowness of walking certainly negates anything like that. The slowness of walking not only negates it, but it's actually beneficial for digestion. And in fact, I think from what I've heard, it's a problem that monks have. It's, it was a criticism a doctor pointed out to me that, that monks often sit do sitting meditation after they eat, and that's not good for digestion. So it's in fact the opposite. I think exercise is actually good for digestion. And so they were saying after, after you eat, you should be doing some kind of physical activity. And I pointed out that, well, after walking, after eating, we try to do walking meditation. And the Buddha even said that it's good for digestion. So I don't think the science supports what you're saying. When meditating, after a thought is complete, I note the thinking. I notice there are different levels of noting, either stopping and taking my full attention, or sometimes taking my partial attention to note, which is correct. should take your full attention, but you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to try and force it to be a full attention. Just make the note and you'll see it's different at different times. Wouldn't think too much about it. If you notice this kind of thing, just say knowing or noticing. I realized I'd been neglecting the instruction to look six feet ahead of you while doing walking meditation. I usually look at my feet. What's the reason for this, and how important is it? Well, the reason is because that's how you're taught. That's how we're taught. And so with a lot of technical things, that should be enough. You know, just do it according to as you're taught. But that's not quite fair, and there is a, it's a pretty good reason, is that if you're looking at your feet, you're actually looking at something. When you're looking 45 degrees down, that's the most neutral you can probably be. You're not really looking at anything, ideally. You know, so looking at the feet is too too much of a look. It's also quite focused and and it's too too uh, intense. Anyway, look forty five degrees down, six feet up. But no, it's not. I mean, it's not going to ruin, make or break your practice. But it's better to look forty five degrees. How can I focus on meditation when I'm in great pain and I get constantly interrupted? Pain I can manage, but I live with people that strongly oppose Buddhism, so I have to practice in secret. Well, do what you can. I can't uh, help you with your life, but uh, the practice certainly will. And you know, I, I wish you all the best. I hope your situation improves, and I think generally through the practice it will improve. Try to be patient. So pain is a great teacher, and if you can manage it, you don't have to really manage it, just try and be mindful of it. And if that's what you mean by managing it, just say, just, that's great, just say pain, pain until it goes away. If it doesn't go away, just try and go back to this main practice and come back to it when it distracts you again. But as far as people who strongly oppose Buddhism, well, just try and keep it to yourself and Mindfulness is luckily something you don't have to do out loud. Uh, but yeah, doing walking and sitting, well, if you have to do it in secret, do the best you can. Sometimes when I don't push myself to note one note per second, it feels easier and more efficient. It feels like maybe one note per second is too fast for me. Is this okay? 
yeah i guess i guess i wouldn't go any faster than that but you don't certainly you certainly don't have to adhere to that as a rule so if you're noting something uh, repeatedly then you can see that one per second is it's just, it's not exact second is just arbitrary you take it as a guide and then you know oh don't do it really slow and don't do it really fast that's all another thing i would say is uh, don't try and um, intentionally find easier ways to do things so um, well it's true that it might feel rushed to do it once per second it may be something else that's disturbing you and has nothing to do with actually noting and it's your own uh, reactions and and bad habits that's causing you stress and so you find to do something easier that that relieves that we're not trying to relieve things we're trying to see them clearly so whatever it is that makes it more difficult try and note that as well During meditation, as my mind starts to wander, sometimes I can notice the moment before it wanders off. Should I force it back to the present, or simply note it before it goes, and once it comes back? Yeah, I'd say wandering or thinking. Wandering may not be quite accurate, but thinking. Distracted, and then go back. Is noting knowing or feeling versus something more specific, a crutch that should be removed? Sometimes I get a feeling I can't name and call it knowing every time. So a feeling should be called feeling. If you can't name it, that's, yeah, feeling is fine. But knowing is for when you're aware of something. How can we balance practicing as if our heads were on fire versus not forcing ourselves from pushing ourselves? Be mindful. Being mindful will balance everything. Is it possible to be deeply immersed in sorrow throughout the meditation without the object? Is it due to expectation? So I'm not really interested in questions about it's possible. And I just say that because I want to redirect your your inquiry. If If you feel deeply sad, it actually doesn't matter what the object is, even if there is one or isn't one. If you're sad, you just say to yourself, sad, sad. Don't go looking for what is possible or what is normal or that sort of thing. There's only one thing that we're interested in, and that is what is, what has arisen. So if it arises, it's sadness, and you don't have to worry about whether it has an object or not. You also don't have to worry about what things are due to. You just have to try and see them clearly, and everything else will sort itself out. We're on to the next tier. All right. What is something you find people commonly misunderstand about meditation? These sorts of questions have to make me think. I don't know if I have any thought process left. Uh, no, I'm just going to pass. So this see the point is yeah it's a second tier question because it doesn't sound like this person needs help i'm gonna pass i realized that i cannot incorporate anything into myself like everything is outside of myself including myself 
Is this non-incorporateness the same as non-self? Non-self is something you experience through meditation. It's probably not anything you're, you can conceptualize. It's just the experience of things as not being self. So realizing the realization that you're having is quite possibly a result of an experience of non-self, but that that what you call a realization is just the byproduct or the result. It's called jnana. It's not really the point. I mean, it's a good sign generally. It can be, but the point is the seeing. But really, the three characteristics are not something mysterious or something. Uh, they're not something hard to find. They're right there. It's just that we're not looking. So when you look, you'll see them. It has nothing to do with intellect. It's just the the way they are, the nature of things. You don't have to interpret it or anything. It's just that that's the nature of things. And what it's going to do is it's going to remove your perceptions of things as self and so on. You recommend the noting technique in meditation. However, some teachers see noting as a distraction and recommend only breath or body awareness. Can one reconcile these different views? Yeah, it's a shame when people say that sort of thing. Um, but I suppose I say exactly the opposite. So no, there's no, no real reconciling it. I would say that... Um, our way is better than theirs. They say their way is better than ours. So you do whatever you think is better for you. You mentioned that if one dies with an impure state of mind, it is possible to be reborn as a lesser being. Would this still happen if one maintained a pure mind the majority of their life? Yes, indeed. It all comes down to that last moment. The point being that if you've maintained a pure mind the majority of your life, it's quite hard to imagine that at the moment of your death um, that you're not going to have a pure mind. That's just your habit, right? However, death can be quite traumatic, and if you do have any attachments left, that's when they're going to come out, any vices left. So it's quite possible for a good person to go to a bad place. It's scary, huh? Mindfulness of death takes on a whole new importance. What are the differences in feeling between each jhana? Is jhana a reasonable path to stream entry, or are there other requirements and conditions? Well, the differences in feeling, I'm not going to go into it's in the text. You can, I'm not going to illustrate them. Is jhana, see, the thing is, jhana in and of itself can't lead to stream entry. I mean, the word jhana means different things, but if by jhana you just mean the absorption, then it depends on the object. In order to become a sotapanna, a stream enter, you have to see impermanent suffering or non-self, and there's a moment of perfect clarity of that. So the only way to see those three things is through focusing on reality. And with with samatha meditation, you don't focus on reality. So there are certain meditations classified as samatha meditations that won't let you do that. And that's the problem with people who focus on the jhana often, is uh, that they, they may never get to seeing clearly. Max, you're making loud noises. Still making noises. Do meditation journals help the meditation practice? I don't know. I, I think if we're getting this low, we might want to just end it.
uh, because we start getting to get into quick conjecture. It's not sure how helpful it is anymore. Let's go back to just talking. So if people have anything to say, you can talk in chat. And we should all say sadhu as well because we uh, appreciate each other and we appreciate this time we've spent together. Sorry sadhu. if your question didn't get answered. If you have any questions that you really need help with, then uh, please come to our next session. Sadhu. Sadhu. And thanks, Chris and Max and Olivia. All right, have a good night, everyone. Thank you all for coming. If you have questions about practice, I recommend you read the booklet on how to meditate. Try it for yourself, see if it helps. The only one who can answer that question is yourself. If it works, if it's helpful, keep it up. I wish everyone all the best. Have a good night.